from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. It's so great to be here with you today, although we've got a ton of rain in the forecast. In fact, today it's Sunday, and uh, looks like it's going to be raining for the next week almost. But rain's a gift, and it is a sign to the grass and the spring flowering bulbs and shrubs that it's time to get growing again, so we'll take it. Although it does mean another week delay in getting into the garden, and if you're like me and have been postponing your garden cleanup, all those chores are going to have to wait just a little bit longer. Well, I have a fantastic show for you today. I'm interviewing Christy Allen and Aaron Rupp of The Bee's Knees. They have a fantastic story and a mighty little company, and I'm excited to share what they're doing with you today. I also want to quickly mention a shout out and a welcome to any of their friends and family who might be listening to the show this week. And one of the things I love the most about this interview is that it puts in very simple terms the state of bees. Of course, we're all at least somewhat familiar with the bee crisis, the pollinator crisis that's happening. But at the same time, they share some very simple, practical tips that each one of us can do this year in our 2014 gardens to help the bees, to help pollinators, and to make a difference in our world. So it's going to be a great interview. Just for some quick housekeeping, don't forget you can review all the information that's covered in the show today in the show notes, which are located on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you'll find the Still Growing podcast in the top menu. And then from there, you can go through all the different episodes that are in the library. There's also a couple of buttons on my website. One will lead you to the top podcast for the show, and the other one is a complete podcast library. So you can take your time and go through all of those episodes there. You can also catch the show on Stitcher, iTunes, and Swell. Stitcher and Swell are my two favorite apps for listening to podcasts. I myself listen to many podcasts. And don't forget, if you like the show or if, or if you like any other podcasts, make sure to leave a review for those shows in iTunes. It's really the only way that the podcasting community has to keep their shows visible in the podcast directories. And I know all the podcasters appreciate a review in iTunes. That's it for housekeeping this week. Let's get to the meat of the show today. As I already mentioned, I'm interviewing Christy Allen and Aaron Rupp of The Bee's Knees. And they're going to give us an in-depth look at how their innovative company is not only selling and delivering honey, but they're also educating and advocating for the core of their business, which is bees. Now, these gals don't need to hire a marketing firm because they're creating a buzz about their business with their fresh and earnest approach. They wear bee costumes and ride on their custom painted bee bikes to deliver their honey throughout the streets of Minneapolis and they strategically partner with all kinds of great organizations in the community. Christy and Aaron are millennial entrepreneurs. They're Gen Y entrepreneurs and they are 
the force behind the bees knees and they share their simple and powerful passion for bees on their website and it says simply on their website on their about page it says we are the bees knees we love bees we love honey we love bicycles and we're on a mission honeybees populate a third of the food we eat beekeepers lose 30 to 40 percent of their hives annually and raising public awareness of and connection to honeybees is essential to a healthy food system and that's what they're doing so it was a pleasure for me to sit down and chat with Christy and Aaron. I learned a ton, and I think you'll find plenty of information, inspiration, and specific steps that you can take to help one of our most important pollinators, bees, in today's show. Let's listen to the interview. Well, today I have the pleasure of interviewing two fabulous ladies, Christy Allen and Aaron Rupp of Bees Knees. Welcome, gals. <laughs> Hi. I've been excited to interview you ever since I learned about Bees Knees. Why don't we start off by having you share a little bit about your background, where you're where you're from, where you grew up, that kind of thing. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Christy, you go first. Okay. I'm from Minnesota. I got a degree in global studies at the University of Minnesota. I went to work for Heifer International in Perryville, Arkansas. Uh, that was my first introduction to... Uh, bees and the problems they were facing. Someone came and spoke about colony collapse disorder. Um, but I also have a family connection. My aunt and uncle who run Barbell Bee Ranch um, are beekeepers, commercial beekeepers. And I went to work with them and I got really uh, interested and fascinated by bees. I'm also a year-round cyclist here in Minnesota. So my passion for bees and bicycles was combined, and that's kind of where the bees' needs started. And I'm from central Wisconsin. This is Erin, and I moved to the Twin Cities in 2000 to go to McAllister and St. Paul, and I studied environmental studies there and um, did a little bit of learning about the food system and what's happening with the way things are grown in in the world, um, and went to work in the middle of college with um this organization called Farm in the City, which is no longer around, but does environmental education around gardening and farming with kids and uh, fell in love with that work and fell in love with experiential education and continued to do that um, until I met Christy uh, in like 2010-11. Yeah. Awesome. Let's talk about how the two of you actually did meet. So we both uh, were keeping bees at Foxtail Farm, which is in Osceola, Wisconsin. Uh, a couple of years before that, um, Foxtail does a really amazing farm apprenticeship program, and so they incubate young farmers. And I think the first person to go through that was my friend Mike Maureen, who has Burning River Farm. And he was in that transition year of getting his own farmland after being incubated by Foxtail and needed pollinators. And that was at the same time that I started working at the Bell Museum of Natural History, which is in Minneapolis. It's the university's natural history museum. And my coworker, Kevin Williams, there was uh, is a beekeeper and agreed to mentor me. And um, so I started beekeeping and then moved the bees down away from Mike's farm back down to Foxtail because he just moved. Uh, his farm was kind of a far commute for caring for the bees every week. So, Christy, yeah. when you first met Aaron, did you think, hey, this is somebody I'm going to work with someday? <laughs> we met in a cloud of bees, and she she had a friend with her, and um, we just started talking about 
what what I was doing with these knees already, which was bringing honey to people's doors and how there was definitely a need to raise awareness about bees. The amount of knowledge with bees and the connection to their food system was definitely deficient um, and became apparent to me when I was selling at farmer's markets. And Erin, with all of her experience teaching um, kids at the Bell Museum and, and working with honeybees, um, it seemed like a natural fit, something that that I really wanted to be a part of the bees needs was educating the public and and Aaron was the perfect person to do so. So you guys literally met in a cloud of bees. Yeah. <laughs> that is a very sweet beginning and totally appropriate for you guys. I think that's awesome. I bet you have some of your best conversations in a cloud of bees. Yeah, I mean it's a surprise. <laughs> okay, awesome. Hey, tell me the mission of Bees Knees because it's pretty special. So we, um, I think since we talked to you last, um, it, we're in the process of, of changing our mission from reviving the hive to healthy bees, healthy lives. We'll talk more about, about healthy bees, healthy lives and how that broader campaign came to be. But in thinking more about who the Bees Knees is and the five things that we do, healthy bees, healthy lives really it speaks to those things. And you do have five main, you know, kind of planks, five main agenda items for bees knees. Do you want to share those with us right now quickly? Yeah. So um, the, the goals of the business are to deliver honey by bicycle and local raw honey from Minnesota um, that is produced by the bees knees and in partnership with Barbell Bee Ranch. And then the second thing we do is we educate the public by providing in-hive experience. Um, we will teach you about bees and then open up a hive with you in a bee suit. The third thing we do is we have a honey house, a Kickstarter-funded uh, honey house here in Minneapolis where we have designed some petal-powered honey extractors and beekeepers from all across the state come to use the extraction facility so that they don't have to deal with the sticky mess and we provide all the equipment and it's fun. Um, and then the fourth thing we are doing is Healthy Bees, Healthy Lives, which Erin mentioned, and that is uh, as a result of a hive and two other hives in Minneapolis um, where affected by a pesticide application and we lost thousands of bees in 24 hours. So we decided that as a business, we had to change our mission because we, to do what we do here in Minneapolis, we we need a healthy landscape. Um, so we need healthy bees. And, and if we don't have healthy bees, we don't have healthy food or, or our, our, our lives, the health of our lives are affected. So and you mentioned, yeah. The other fifth mini thing that supports those other things is that we keep bees in community spaces around Minneapolis. So parks and schools and community gardens and urban farms. And Minneapolis is where we're focusing now because we're two people on bicycles. And so we hope to expand to, to St. Paul and, and other um, cities in the metro. So... So that's like the fifth uh, piece of it is the being active in yeah. parks and schools. Yeah, yeah. And in combination, so beekeeping is not as is not as easy as it used to be. It's 
because of all the pressures that bees have on them from the environment, we're working with um, an up-and-coming business called Four Seasons Apiaries that uh, they're focusing on breeding breeding bees right here in Minnesota. So we're very, very interested in sustainable beekeeping in in and raising bees in our area. For folks who are not familiar with the term apiary, do you want to tell people what that is? Sure. It's just what uh, beekeepers refer to as the place where they keep their bees. So traditionally out in the country, you would see uh, stacks of boxes, maybe with a fence around them, um, and that's where the bees, that's their home base. And in the city, it, uh, it looks a little bit different, but it's the same idea. Okay, let's do a deep dive on the five different aspects of your business because each one of them merits some extra special attention. Let's start with honey sales because that's really where it started for you guys. Yeah, great. So the the business began with a question from um, Barbell Bee Ranch from my aunt and uncle. I was up there extracting honey. They have about over a thousand hives. Um, And my aunt asked if I would like to sell uh, their honey in Minneapolis, and I had a bike that needed to be painted for the because it'd been through a couple winters. So I decided that I would paint my bike to look like a bee and deliver honey like the milkman to people's doors. And I didn't really know where it would where it would go. And on Halloween, I I decided to dress up like a bee to match my bike, and it just kind of no pun intended stuck. And I, the bees became a honey delivery uh, business where I would source honey from my aunt and uncle and then deliver it. Then shortly before I met Aaron, I wanted the, I decided I wanted to do my own production. And so started everything I made from the delivery, the honey sales was put into buying equipment and and getting the business set up for production. And then when Aaron and I met, we we went full force into the education side of things. And Aaron can tell you more details about that. Yeah, around the time that we met, Christy was talking about bringing hives into the city, increasing. So when she says increasing production, it's it's keeping more of our own bees. So more bees produce more honey and then... Um, yeah, and that's what we're producing. And um, so around that time, we were talking about bringing hives into the city and um, working with, with partner sites to do that. And one of them was McKinley CSA, which is uh, a neighborhood-run CSA farm in North Minneapolis. Somewhere along the line, they brought to our attention a grant that was through Hennepin County Environmental Services and then made possible by the Minnesota Environmental and Natural Resources Trust Fund as recommended by the Legislative Citizen Commission on Minnesota Resources. This grant was available for environmental education and we applied for it with McKinley and got it. And so we were able to work over those two years with about 15 youth, 8 to to 15 in beekeeping suits, learning more about who bees are and why they're important and what beekeeping is anyway. And it was really just an awesome foundation to the environmental and beekeeping education, bee education that we do. And so, and we learned a lot of lessons from that. And and one of them was just that this initial experience of putting on a beekeeping suit and learning more about bees through experiencing the hive, that's really powerful and empowering. 
uh, one of our goals is to offer to as many people as we can. And it's something that is, is available not only for folks who want to be beekeepers and want to get this sense of what it's like working at Hive, but for folks who just want to know more about what what's going on with the bees and know more about who bees are and why they're important to the health of our ecosystems and to our health or just want to do something fun on a Saturday with their brother or their kid or their date. Wow. But they were so foundational in that. Yeah. That is awesome. Now, I took the liberty of looking at some reviews of your honey online, your honey delivery, and I wanted to mention some of the things that have been said about your honey product and get your reaction to it, okay? Yep. Yay. Okay, gals. Oh, God. So, yeah. <laughs> so, one of your customers um, raves about the buckwheat honey, which is recommended for coffee. Is that right? Yeah, that's how I use it. And is it a popular honey for you guys? It isn't. It's really interesting because a lot of beekeepers from different parts of the state don't have a market for it. But you bring it to Minneapolis and St. Paul, where we're kind of, you know, weirdos and we like things that taste different. That's a joke. Um, I think it's just a really unique honey. It's also very, uh, the, the health benefits of it. There's been studies done by Penn State that, uh, have proved it to be more effective than cough syrup. Um, it, it's a really earthy honey and it, it, it pairs really well with things. So if you're into baking or you do a lot of, um, cooking with glazes or sauces, it's a wonderful honey. And so I can't really, my supply every year runs out, uh, and there's definitely a very strong demand for it. How would you describe the taste? How would you describe the flavor for, for folks who are curious about it? For, for me, it's, it's, uh, it tastes it's strong, but it kind of, if you like dark beer or uh, oatmeal, it's, a, it's earthy, almost like molasses. And can be a very caramely texture. So peanut butter and banana sandwiches are, are the bee's knees, as they say. So uh, <laughs> great for cooking then. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. Well, another customer mentioned that the honey varies by season. Does your does your product line vary that much by season? We offer a, um, a wildflower. We do have some hives that are on still on Foxtail Farm where Aaron and I met. We, we were very tied to this part, uh, this farming community, and we, we just we can't get away. And they, the honey produced <laughs> out there is really, really wonderful. It's uh, kind of fruity, light, um, beautiful honey. But we are, we're really focused on being sustainable beekeepers, so we're trying to give the bees as much as they need without taking too much uh, to sell. So when we harvest a certain amount, if we if we get a certain amount, we sell it until it's gone. Um, so the wildflower is something that comes back in the fall. And then the honeyapolis wildflower, the city honey, it's the same thing. We only have two hives at each site. Every single honey we source by zip code. And every zip source honey is, is different. Uh, and when, when that hive only produces so much and once we sell out, it's gone. And, and then the next year we'll have that zip code back. But what's really exciting about that honey is we don't know 
year to year what it's going to, if it's going to be the same, if it's going to be different, because people are planting uh, such a variety of things here in the city. Whereas out in the country, if you know what's around you, your landscape, there's a lot of basswood trees blooming at a certain time of year. The honey, the bees collect nectar and they turn that nectar into honey. And whatever flower they're collecting from will determine the taste of the honey. So buckwheat, for example, is fields and fields, 1,200 acres of buckwheat. So we as beekeepers know that if we put bees on those fields when they're blooming, the honey is going to be primarily buckwheat. Well, that's interesting. So you're not infusing it with anything. It's not like you're taking a product and then adding buckwheat. It's already being done for you by the bees. Isn't that wild? So they're, yeah, they go a three-mile radius from their hive, and they're just, um, we have hives. So the McKinley hives that I mentioned are at 33rd and Lindale North um, in Minneapolis, and then we have another host site project, Sweetie Pie, which is a 25th and Emerson North, and that location is a mile from the other one. I just looked it up. And the honeys that they made this year are so different. The Emerson, the Project Sweetie Pie one is like kind of molasses-y, smoky, like similar to the buckwheat. Um, and then and then the McKinley one, Christy, how would you describe that one? It's like fruitier and more yeah, floral. It's yeah. Lighter honey is, you know, it's from flowers that um, kind of like clover honey is a very light. They call beekeepers call it white honey. So I would I would say it's more of a white honey or golden honey, whereas buckwheat is a, definitely a dark honey. And we're doing some experimenting with like when to pull honey in the season. So what Christy was mentioning about the buckwheat, if you put um, Put your hives in the buckwheat for that bloom and then pull the honey after the, the bloom is done, then that honey is going to be mostly buckwheat, right? And the buckwheat, I don't Christy knows when it flowers, but like clover and basswood are flowering in July. And so if you pull honey in July, it's going to be mostly clover and basswood. And, and it's really exciting, all these different variables that can happen um, with bees, right, and with city bees. So we can compare year to year. We can compare season to season. We can compare block to block or neighborhood by neighborhood. And and we're so excited about that. And it ties into the advocacy work that we're doing, too, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Two things I want to follow up on really quick that you ladies just mentioned. One is that you have to be careful about the amount of honey you're harvesting. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, historically, you used to be... So, um, honeybees are making honey for themselves, so they have something to eat in the winter. They're kind of crazy insects in the way that they overwinter. They're not flying south like monarchs do or um, laying their eggs in the fall in the ground and then those eggs catch out or they pupate. Yeah, different ways to get through the winter. And honeybees maintain the same temperature and shiver together around the queen and move like penguins so nobody's on the outside of that cluster for too long and eat honey and survive, even when it's like negative 30 for days, as it has been in, in Minnesota this winter. So they need about 100 pounds of honey to, to do that and eat through the winter. And any honey that they make over that, you can take. And it used to be that they were making 200 pounds over that. 
Um, and that's kind of a high number, but not out of the ordinary. And these days, it's like 30, 40, 50 pounds. So the ways that bees are hurting right now is impacting their ability to gather honey. Yeah, one way you determine bee health is, is if they make a lot of honey, you know that they're doing pretty well for the most part inside their hives. So if our bees aren't making a lot of honey, then then there's something going on either within their hive or in the landscape around them. One thought I had uh, as far as urban, uh, for urban bees is why aren't there hives located at, at nurseries, at our inner city nurseries? Do you know why? How interesting. That would be, we would love to put some hives at nurseries. Yeah, I think one of the potential issues there is related to the, the reasons why bees are dying. And are we ready to go into this advocacy? You know, I know we're going to go into advocacy later, so let's hold that thought. But you think some of it might be tied to that then? Yeah, and we'll we'll, um, loop back around to this this thing. Okay. We'll come back <laughs> to this. Teaser. So save so save that thought. Yes, it's a teaser. You've mentioned already the clover basswood honey, but people love it in their tea, right? Yeah. Uh I have a lot of customers who that's the primary sugar source in their tea. It really complements like a green tea or an herbal tea very well, especially mint teas because there's already a little basswood honey takes on this sort of minty flavor. So if you have a, a mint and you're complimenting them with the honey. It's just really, really nice sweetener. And the clover basswood honey is something that Minnesota is known for. Like we have these, have had these big stands of linden trees, basswood trees, and clover blooming. And it's been a, an awesome spot historically for beekeepers to bring their hives to help them get healthy. So having big stands of forage for bees that can allow them to make honey for themselves supports the other pollinating work that we're asking of them throughout the year. And we'll talk more about, that's another teaser about how bees are tied into our food system and uh, a third of everything we eat. And a common theme throughout the reviews that your customers leave for you is that people are absolutely enchanted with your farm-to-table via bicycle methodology. As people who have been using bikes for transportation for ten plus years, you know, on a selfish level, I don't, I, I, I need a reason to be biking all the time because it is just part of what I do. I mean, I think it, it really just inspires people to be healthy and and get some exercise and not cars are expensive and and to be running our business and delivering honey all over town and paying for that gas where instead we can just be paying our monthly gym fee I'm all about it and they say it's it's really visible right like Christy started putting antenna on her helmet and dressing as a bee and and people see that and and that's what we do we bike around as bees and deliver honey and teach and do the things that we do and people it it it's engaging, right? And it's something we want to be working in this community. We want to be uh, working together with this community. And and uh, it's a great way to do that. To put yourself on a bike. I mean, stopping in a car is like, it's 
there's kind of a process of rolling down your window and then shouting at something, you know, um, or, or responding to folks shouting at you. But if you're on your bike, you just stop and say hi. You keep going, you say hi. You, it's really easy to communicate with folks when you're on your bike. And that's part of our goal is to, is to be seen and to raise awareness of what's going on with these and, and us. Um, through that. The novelty and the personalized service uh, has definitely created word of mouth for you guys. People love your outfits. Have you ever gotten a customer just purely because you're dressed up as a bee? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, we get all the time. They want us to do an event or, you know, they, before they say, are you coming? They said, now make sure that you're wearing your bee outfit. And it's like, okay, am I uh, being taken seriously here or am I just a show? But it's really, you know, what Aaron was saying, just to give you an example, uh, uh, yesterday there was a bus driver who saw Aaron on the side of the road (laughs) and they stopped and they had an interaction. And then he showed up at this, this, event we were having and and was like I love what you're doing and took our card and you know it was just that that connection that it's hard these days with the amount of technology and how quickly things move to really have a personal interaction with someone that that makes them think about lots of different things and puts a smile on most reactions I would say 99% of the interactions we have are positive it's not someone like yelling at us to get off the road or you're crazy. Um, it's like crazy good instead of crazy bad. And that bicycle advocacy work is a side part of what we're doing, right? Like bikes need to be seen. Yeah. And making us ourselves super visible and somebody that you, you want to engage with is a piece of that. Now, I understand from my research that at least one of you has a name for your bike. Do you want to share that with us? <laughs> Oh, I name all my bikes, uh, but the one that we, the one that, that I uh, started on is named Kako, but as soon as I painted her black and yellow, she became a girl, so now she's B. Arthur. B. Arthur. Um, yeah. Erin, <laughs> do you name your bikes? They don't. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get on board with that. She wants to be original, huh? Okay, so it looks like you guys have done uh, an urban beehive bike tour in your past. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that was really fun. Uh, It was put on by um, Mississippi Market in collaboration with some other co-ops in town. And they set up different urban and rural farm tours around the Twin Cities area, and we were one of the stops. So we have a beehive um, in partnership with Growing Lots Urban Farm, and they're across the street from our honey house in Minneapolis. And they all met at Growing Lots, and then we told anyone who wanted to be part of our tour had to bring their bicycle, so they showed up on their bikes. We gave them all antennae to to bike around with us. Um, And we just went to different urban sites we have three different sites within two miles of each other so we biked down the greenway and we never had to get on a road with traffic which is another really wonderful thing about being in Minneapolis this this business I don't know how well it would do if it didn't have the greenway and other bicycle friendly uh, pathways that we have 
Minneapolis is putting a lot of emphasis on bike, bike infrastructure, and it's super important. So we went around and we uh, I showed them the hives and told them about what the Bees Knees does, and um, I think people really enjoyed it. We'll do it again this year at some point. It's no. super fun. It's and super stay fun. tuned to the Bees Knees, uh, our webpage, our events page, and we'll be posting about that when we get it up. It'll likely be a, later in the summer, I think, is what we're talking about. But you are going to yeah. do it again. Oh, absolutely, oh, yeah. 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 Okay, awesome. Well, you can't have a conversation about bees these days without discussing the bee crisis. And as we uh, tried to tease a little bit earlier in the show, advocacy is something you are so passionate about. What's your platform on bees? Well, I think before we talk about our platform, let's talk a little bit about what's happening to bees. And so beekeepers, as I said, well, honeybees, as I said before, are pollinating a third of everything we eat. And that third is mostly fruits and vegetables and berries a lot, like squash, everything in that family, coffee, berries, tons of fruits. Whole Foods in Rhode Island did an interesting photo shoot recently and and took all the bee-pollinated things out of their produce section. And and that's a great comparison photo to to look and see the, the visual impact of what bees are pollinating. So they're really important to to our food system. And we'll talk about why. There's several things happening with them. And, and we're working in the Twin Cities, and the U of M Bee Lab is here, and Dr. Marla Spivak runs that lab. And she talks about four P's, which are pesticide use and pathogens and something about forage. What's the P? No food. And then parasites. So honeybees have a lot of things, uh, this varroa mite, the blood-sucking parasite lives inside the hives that they have to deal with. They have some other pathogens. There's a disease, nozema, that inhibits their ability to absorb protein. So there's some things making them weak and then not having enough food. So there's there's not very much forage for bees these days. And I talked historically about how Minnesota was super great for clover and basswood and for bringing your hives to get them healthy because there's lots of nectar here. That ne- Those nectar sources are really depleted these days. And so that lack of forage is a really big issue. And then there's more and more research about, about pesticides and, and these systemic pesticides being toxic for bees. And in a study recently, there in looking in that beehive, there's something like 16 different chemicals interacting in a hive. The way that bees work, foraging all over the place, means that they're picking up a lot of things. And then all those things are interacting in a beehive in a way that we don't know much about. The situation with bees has gotten so bad that, you know, there's a group of farmers in southern Minnesota that had to hand pollinate their melons and squash this year. That's unacceptable. We live in a state that Traditionally, we have, we should have no problem pollinating things because there's just so so much rich landscape, and, and and this shouldn't be an issue anywhere. Bees do this amazing work for us, and there's parts of Asia that are so polluted that they're they have to hand pollinate their food. And if you can imagine what you would have to, you know, your food would just become really really expensive if that was part of the process of growing it. So our advocacy, we we had a high, we're trying to do beekeeping and we're trying to make a living being beekeepers at a time where the bees are telling us that there's not a supportive environment for this. And we know this now because we put a hive at a school in the city and someone applied a pesticide legally 
and thousands of RVs died. That we were able to figure that out, that's pretty unique. So a pesticide foragers, the older bees, worker bees, are going out and gathering the nectar and the pollen from flowers. And, and um, this hive that we had was affected by this pesticide in September. So there were something like 50,000 bees in that hive. So I don't know, 10, 20,000 of them were old enough to go out and forage. And um, they came back and we saw them writhing around dying from this from being poisoned. And and once they're dead, the UV light disintegrates the pesticide residue in something like two, three hours. So you aren't able to test to see what killed them. So we, uh, along with the U of M B lab and B squad, who know how to collect bees and do this research, were gathering those bees as they were dying and sent them off to the Minnesota Department of Ag Lab and the USDA lab. And so we we're able to um, those tests came back with this pesticide for canil. So we now know that cosmetic applications of pesticides, the kind of applications that folks are doing in the city, have impact on hives, are killing bees. So we're mobilizing around that. And in conjunction with um, the other beekeepers who were affected in this radius around Blake School where iHive was, and um, local politicians and the Bee Lab and the Bee Squad and homegrown Minneapolis members of that, which is our uh, Minneapolis Food Council, we started this Healthy Bees, Healthy Lives initiative. And we're focusing on education and then also some, in, in talking with Minneapolis City Council, realized that if, if Minneapolis wanted to say something like, we want to make it such that if you're spraying perpanel, which is something that folks commonly apply to foundations for things like carpenter ants or termites or other insect pests, um, if you're doing that work, you can't do it at a time of day when a bloom is happening, or you can't do it on your foundation if you have flowers within, I don't know, 30 feet or whatever. These kind of rules that we don't know yet, right? We haven't put figured out what that would look like if we wanted to do something like that. Um, we don't have the authority to be able to because there's a preemption law um, at the state level that says that everything that has to do with pesticide regulation, um, the Department of Ag handles and and any governing, any governing body under that can't have any more strict regulation than that. So we have this, uh, this policy challenge to to see if that preemption law, if we can work at the legislative level to get that evolved. If we can simplify this very complex situation in any way, I would just say that we all have, we're all invested in this because it, it is our health. It is connected to the way that we grow food and the way that we eat food. And in the, in the middle of the city, if, if a pesticide application is able to kill thousands of bees in 24 hours, what else does it affect? And that, this is a really big deal. So that's another reason we're very passionate about this. Is this, this is going to take everybody to start paying attention to the way that we're growing food and the way that we're treating our landscape. And so that, that um, policy advocacy work that I was just talking to is a piece of this campaign. And another piece is this pollinator pledge and yard sign education piece of it, and then also talking to nurseries and hardware stores. So I mentioned before this nursery teaser, um, it would be awesome for us to have beehives at nurseries, but one of the things that, I mean, 
you want to have a beautiful plant at a nursery, right? And that um, for your customers. And and living in a nursery as a plant is a little bit stressful. So most nurseries, almost everybody, is treating pre-treating their plants with these systemic pesticides, including the bee forage, pre-treating the bee forage, and and um, those systemic pesticides are taken up by the leaves and the stem and are there for these pests who will try to eat the stem, right, and then and then die and then not try to eat the stem anymore. But they're also taken up in the pollen and the nectar in low, low doses that honeybees, that don't kill a honeybee outright, but because of the way that they work, they're, they're foraging from a ton of different flowers and bringing it back to their hives, and that's compounding. And also, those low doses, we're learning more, um, impacts of these brains and their ability to find their way back to their hives. And a lot of other things that we're learning more about as research happens. It's a complicated issue. Yeah, huge, right? It's insane. Yes, it's not like we can just provide pollen sources and call it a day because we have to think right. beyond that. It's, uh, you know, the safety and the practices around those flowers and plants. Now, we've talked briefly uh, before this interview about how all pollinators are at risk right now. Can you help connect the dots for folks who hear the stories in the news about bees and monarchs now, bats and frogs, all of those, because they're all interconnected, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're changing our ecosystems, right? And so the way that we're farming these days is, is large swaths of the same crop. And in terms of the monarchs, milkweed is, is their host plant. They need milkweed to eat when they're babies. They use it as a nectar source, and on this big migration that monarchs do, they need milkweed from Minnesota down to Michoacan, Mexico. Milkweed is is an agricultural weed, and so um, with Roundup, it's a weed that gets killed pretty easily. And so there isn't that habitat, that host plant, along the whole migration for monarchs to be able to to eat and and then make that migration. So they're really suffering, and and this food system. Um, that lack of habitat and that lack of forage is something that's impacting all pollinators. And and we thought, to go back to honeybees for a little bit, we thought that honeybees were really well-matched for monocultures. They live in this, the Langstroth hive is the box that you see um, that uh, beekeepers are typically keeping bees in. Bees will choose that box, and that box we can move easily around the country to the bloom, and that's what commercial beekeepers are doing. And, and need to be doing for the way that we farm. So if you have a big monoculture of just almonds, it's the same as a big monoculture of just lilacs, right? If we And lilacs, we know, they bloom in early spring. And almonds have a bloom time um, in, what, February? And all those flowers, all those plants, acres and acres and acres, they all go to bloom at the same time. So there's a feast if you're a pollinator during those two, three weeks. And then there's no food at all for the rest of the year. So as a pollinator in that ecosystem, you can't survive because there's nothing to feed you for those 11 months. So beekeepers need to move their bees. Farmers require beekeepers to move their bees to those blooms. And beekeepers these days are getting something like $200 per hive to move their bees to the almonds. So here in Minnesota, we get two-thirds of our fruit and vegetables from California especially during the wintertime. There's a drought in California, and there's 
a lot of issues going on right now, and a lot of the monocultures require a ton of water because you're you're using one crop for for you're, there are eight hundred thousand acres of almonds in one area. That's a lot. There's nothing else growing but almonds, and they only bloom for three weeks out of the year. So if you have a crop that's blooming three weeks out of the year and is there permanently, what happens for the for the rest of the the year? There aren't there isn't another crop that bees have access to, so the bees get moved in and out. And there are lots of crops like this: blueberries, cranberries, oranges. I mean, you name it. This this is going on. Any of the seeds that we have are by honeybees in large areas. And honeybees really like foraging and a lot. So each individual individual bee, as she goes out on her foraging, will choose the same kind of flower on that one trip if she can. Um, and then she'll come back and she'll dance and she'll tell everybody else that she found this great swath of flowers and then everybody else will go out to that same thing. So they, the way that they've evolved is to be able to, it, it seems well matched for this monoculture system. But as we're learning more about this system, those things that I mentioned, those things that are going on with bees, a lot of them are tied to the way that we grow food. There's not much forage for bees, the pesticide use, and honeybees are, are, Insects that we manage and that we know really well and that we do, well, kind of well, right? <laughs> we can talk more about that, that we see. And so they're easy to study and easy to tell that these things are, that they're dying. And, and an insect like the monarch is kind of similar, but an insect like, we just learned about this butterfly that's, that's almost extinct in, in Minnesota. All these, there's over 4,000 species of bees in North America, and, and a lot of them we don't know much about, but these kind of environmental changes that we've made to our ecosystems are impacting them too. Yes. Uh, once again, I was thinking as you ladies were talking that diversity is really the unappreciated component to so many of our Absolutely. of our issues. And you were, Go you ahead. were saying that like it's kind of a complicated, there's not an easy fix, but there are some concrete individual actions that people can take that will help, right? Yes. Like planting bee forage is awesome. And just keeping in the back of your mind that you need to be a little bit, think a little bit about where that bee forage is coming from, you know, but planting that is great. Eliminating your pesticide use, that's great. And that really will positively impact bees and other pollinators, other insects, and then things that eat those insects. Supporting local farmers. You know, we have a ton. We have this insane movement that's growing in Wisconsin and Minnesota and in Iowa of people our age who really want to be farmers, but land is really expensive. A lot of it goes to corn and soybeans because there are very attractive subsidies that, that corn and soybean farmers get, and it's a system that they've been put into themselves. So this is a very large issue, but we can make steps. As consumers, that's our biggest power, is, is if we're not buying products that are harmful to bees, then they have to come up with products that help bees because that's where we want, that's what we want. That's our choice. And that's a great segue into the educational aspect of your business, because I know that's a very important part of Bees Knees. It's one of the strengths that Erin brought to your partnership. 
you really like to draw on experiential, immersive learning opportunities for people. And you take advantage of the fact that everyone knows at least something about bees. As I was reading so many stories of the way that you train, that was a common theme that you draw from as a way, as a starting point, right, to get people interested in the conversation about bees. Yeah, I mean, every. Bees have been on people's minds recently, so there's that point of connection. But also, um, people are afraid of bees, right? If they're a stinging insect, and some, like some close relatives of bees, wasps, um, yellow jackets, they're carnivores and more aggressive, and at our picnics, and and are kind of scary sometimes. And so that that fear is a point of connection for folks, and it's also knowledge that they already have. And using inquiry, experiential education pulls on that knowledge and builds that knowledge and allows them, allows people, students to have opportunities for success in that hive. So we we teach these classes for everyone and, and learn more about who bees are before we put on bee suits and then see those things in the hive. And it's structured such that, that student discovery is a major piece of that, right? So figuring out what the queen looks like compared to the workers and the drones, the males, and then going into that hive and having people discover who's who. It's really an empowering, awesome experience. And honeybees are such great teaching tools and and really offer a lot of engaging points of connection to learning if you're anybody. At a time when teachers need more engaging connections to learning, honeybees offer that. What's the reaction, or do you see a transformation in your students as you, from the beginning of the class to the end of the class, do you notice a difference in their faces or in their their conversations with you? We've had some great quotes, like one of the McKinley youth, Robert, was said something the first time he was in the hive, and he was like a little bit nervous to go in, but then he got in, was holding a frame, and said something like, ah, I was made to be in this environment, which <laughs> is really great. Um, and it, we've taught, I think, over 500 people now. And there have been a few folks, especially in these bigger field trips, people who are like, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And then we go through the introduction and then they say, okay, I think I'm going to do it. And I'm going to stand by the back and I'm not really going to look that closely. But then by the end of the time, they're in there too. Great life experience. Yeah, it's really, it's really empowering. And also one thing that we really want to do with this program is there are a lot of people who are very interested in becoming beekeepers, but beekeeping is not it's a, it's a it's a big commitment and so our classes can offer people the chance to experience what it's like to really get a good idea of everything that goes into it before they get a beehive so you know instead of getting the hive and then you're like scared to go in there and you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what it feels like you can you can provide that experience before you commit to the whole the whole package And that's another perfect segue because urban beehives are such an important part of what you guys do. Tell us about that part of Bees Knees. So we're partnering with community spaces around town. We have a really amazing partnership with Minneapolis Parks. And so we have uh, six hives at three different parks. We have some at community gardens, urban farms, um, like McKinley that I mentioned, Growing Rocks, that Christy mentioned, Project Sweetie Pie. This piece of it is really exciting for us to engage with new audiences through communities. I think that because there is this sort of assumption about 
perceive that they're dangerous and scary working in communities and, and, and bees work like communities. So I think we're trying to emulate that, that idea that it's going to take all of us for, for this situation to get under control for the bees and for them to have a, a good environment. More and more people are moving into the cities from, from rural areas. We're, you know, going to be growing more food near those areas. And I think it's really wonderful that the bees are trying to tell us that our landscape is kind of sick right now and we need to pay attention because, you know, there's a lot of things, health risks involved with living in the city with pollution and, and different things. And so it's a good way to educate about a lot of different things and also engage the community. It brings people together, you know, and it, it can really liven up a neighborhood and, and create community around those bees. And the communities that we have bees now and the ones that we're working on towards the this next year and then into the future, they're long conversations. So Minneapolis Public Schools, a couple of schools have approached us about beehives. Uh, Minneapolis Public Schools is a big school district. And so the number of folks that we are talking to to make sure that those hives are okay and that kids are okay and that conversation is a long one and one that we're committed to as an organization is figuring out how to how to offer this point of connection to lots of different people. And I think as as Minneapolis has a really and the Twin Cities have an amazing urban agricultural movement and lots of folks growing here talking about food justice and food sovereignty and pollinators are an important piece of that. And it's just such an honor for me to be able to support our community in this way and to be able to be a part of it in this way. I've worked in in a lot of urban growing programs like Farm in the City that I mentioned. Youth Farm is another awesome youth empowerment through growing programs and being able to, to support all this work around town is just really so fun. <laughs> yes, and it's going to continue to grow. I know one yeah. of the exercises we did together when we had a quick phone call uh, prior to this interview is that we did a quick SWOT analysis of bees' knees. So let's go through that again, shall we? Because so many uh, small business people in the garden industry and others have so much in common with you as a small business, and I think we can learn from each other. So <laughs> strengths, strengths, the S for SWOT is strengths. What do you think your strengths are, ladies? I think the way that Christy started the business and, and like the focus on fun and hope is really just, uh, yeah, something that we hold as our strength. And I think that both of us are, we strive to be approachable and kind and, and I think we're really accessible and we want to be because honeybees initially might not be, right? But then all the things that they're doing with us, for us are so important to, to the way that we live. So your strength is in your origins. How about uh, weakness? We were talking a little bit about this on the phone, and, and I think it's just that we have these bigger drivers, right? Christy talked about the the schooling that we have and the things that we're thinking about and the, the way that our food system is broken is is negatively impacting so many people, and that, that fight is huge, and we are committed to being a part of that fight. Uh, Add to that, we 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 don't have a background in business, and we want to be a business because we want we want to show sustainability in business. We want to provide a, that consumer choice I talked about earlier. 
we live in a world where where money is is in charge, and so if we can work within that system and 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 be involved in that choice, I think that's going to be a very effective way. We want to be more like a social enterprise that our business is is based on doing good for you know and living being responsible around our community. And so our weakness is that we don't we don't function necessarily from a business mind. We function more from kind of a social innovation mind that that is doesn't always fit the mold of of capitalism. How about opportunity? What's your biggest opportunity for bees knees in the near future? With healthy bees, healthy lives, with this advocacy work that we're doing that we've now like taken on as as I mean, all the work that we have been doing this whole time is advocacy, but we now have a, a way to talk about it. We're getting to be able to talk about all these. I mean, we're doing so many different things, right? And talking about them succinctly is something that we're we're getting to be able to do. And as we do that, there's the the opportunities for us to educate more people and provide more honey and, and to expand our beekeeping operation and, and the use of our honey house and the things that are happening in this space, all those are growing. And so we have, we're in this great spot right now that we've got the things that we're doing established. We're still a super young organization. And so now we, we have the opportunity to, to grow these things. I'm really excited about our opportunities of partnership. Uh, as as complicated as that can be, sometimes it's really exciting to to be working with different groups around the city towards a common goal, and that is to have a healthy environment, to have healthy bees, and thus you have healthy lives, and to have a healthy food system too. I think and there's a lot of people who are already connected to that broken food system and know about it and are um, experiencing how it's broken and then a lot of folks who aren't. And so if these can be a tool to help connect people to realize that the system needs change, that's awesome. And how about threats? Uh, threats are that it doesn't work and these go away and we have a lot of problems, a future that is going to be a lot more difficult. I mean, we're already... The weather is, is crazy right now, right? Yes. And that does not help growing food um, or our ability to do what we normally do on a daily basis is, is severely impacted. And and we don't, every year as beekeepers, we have no idea what the season will hold. And that's why as a beekeeper, you know, just selling honey is really difficult. I mean, what if there is, it's a farmer, any farmer's fight is if there's a, a giant disaster that that you can't really control in your own farm or, or or field, but but that's what I think the bees knees is is trying to communicate is that this is involves all of us and our impacts, small or large, affect everybody. The beekeepers are losing thirty to fifty percent of their hives annually, and that number just keeps going up, and it's going up to a to a point where some of us are wondering if this is sustainable, you know, if we can continue to be beekeepers. And so those kind of big threats are real. And if bees do go away, the the problems that, I mean, bees need not having 
disease is going to be a minor issue compared to the bigger problems that we have sourcing strawberries or any other vegetables or, you know, all these nutritious things that we need in our diet that are already not cost-effective for folks, they're going to continue to be. Can you imagine if, if everybody lost coffee? How angry? Cases, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point, Christy. Great point. Now, I think uh, it's, oh, it's, go ahead. It's more of favorite thing to talk about is, is coffee. You know, it's like it is really this thing that we don't think about how it gets here. It doesn't grow here and it is depollinated and yes. it, it really does keep people sort of sane in, in, in an interesting way, I think. If the bees themselves can't inspire you, uh, loss of coffee probably could, right? <laughs> oh, yes. We're shallow people, aren't we? Um, okay. So the fact that the two of you are in business together is a bonus over sole owner operators because you can really leverage each other's strengths. And um, I loved when I found out that you guys had recently done the Strengths Finder exercise. I used to do that uh, when I worked in corporate America for companies. So what are your individual strengths and how do they translate into helping uh, you guys with the business and helping each other work together? Yeah, we were going to look them up. I'm looking them up right now. I know that we have one in common, and it's that uh, we both contemplate things and think a lot about the, the actions that we're taking and and are intentional in those actions. Okay. And then there's oh. some, yeah. Yeah, you go. Mine, mine are restorative, activator, empathy, achiever, input. Okay. And Aaron and I only share one of those. And Erin can tell you which one it is as soon as she finds it. So it's activator. It's the restorative. One. It's the yeah. restorative. yeah. Okay. So it was activator, input, achiever, restorative. And what, what was the last one, Christy? Empathy. Empathy. And then mine are restorative, connectedness, relator, individualization, and learner. Ah. And, <laughs> and we did these because we have a business mentor now. So that's like another strength, I think, is that we live in this amazing community and there have been so many supportive people who have come out to, to lend a hand to the bees knees. And it's just been really humbling and honoring and well, that really is a strength for your business because even though your business is a partnership, you're really you have other kind of partners throughout the city with the schools mm-hmm. and the communities and your customers. So it really is uh, kind of a bigger operation, um, mm-hmm. you know, than just maybe yeah. what it might appear on the surface. So, if I were to give advice to um, to new business owners, I would say ask for help. You know that. Pride, pride can be a very dangerous feeling in that you you don't expand your ability to to do good things because you're afraid of what you're not capable of doing. But business requires so many different skills, and you're not going to have all of them. 
So reaching out for help is, is a strength in, in my view, not a weakness. I agree. And we've gotten such uh, support from this organization, Mentor Planet, um, which is a social networking site. And so you make a profile and you sign up and you say, I want a mentor in this, or I want to be mentored. I need a mentor for these things. And and then um, it matches you with a mentor. And it's, yeah, it's been pretty wonderful for us as a resource. So if folks want to pursue that, they just go to the website? Yeah, mentorplanet.com. That's a great resource for folks. And if they want to um, get a hold of you, they can reach you at your website. Do you want to share that address for folks? Yeah, www.thebeesneedsdelivery.com. And both the uh, S's are Z's, correct? Yep, right. Okay, and how about social media? Where are you at on social media? We're on Um, Facebook. And Twitter and Instagram. Okay. So our handles at Twitter and Instagram are Bees Knees Honey and then The Bees Knees Honey on Instagram. And then it's Bees Knees Bicycle Delivery on Facebook. And contact information, ladies, if they want to get a hold of you, what would you recommend? Email works great. And so it's either Erin, E-R-I-N, or Christy, K-R-I-S-T-Y, at TheBeesKneesDelivery.com. Any uh, yeah, upcoming events you want to share with folks before we close the show? So I'm not sure when this will be airing, but we have some kids' nights happening and kids' Saturdays happening at the Honey House. It's a, a kids-only event. Erin, I know you guys also offer a ton of classes. Do you want to highlight that schedule or some of your offerings? Yeah, so we're teaching um, these in-hive classes. We offer these experiences every week through our partnership with Minneapolis Parks, through our own classes. And so you can find more information on our on our website. And we'll be teaching those through May through September, October, depending on, on what the season's like. That's great. How big are those classes usually? Yeah, they vary. So there's date classes. You can bring you and your date. We have them as, as big as like 15 people. We also offer them as field trips to, oh. to bigger groups. And so you, as a teacher, can bring your classroom. Um, yeah, and if, if you have, a, I mean, like typical classroom sizes, like 35 these days, right? So in that class, we offer everybody an opportunity in the hive. And so we do some station level work. So, so everybody gets that experience. That's great. Well, ladies, I I think what you're doing with your business and for the community and for the bee's survival and sustainability is yeoman's work. It's something really special. And I just wanted to share with you that when I was doing my research for this interview, I found a little history of the term bee's knees in the Oxford Dictionary website. And it said that the phrase bee's knees was first recorded in the late 18th century when it was used to mean something very small and insignificant. But then in the 1920s, slang phrases like flea's eyebrows and the cat's whiskers became popular, and they meant someone or something was outstanding. And because of those terms, the bee's knees went from being a term that meant something small and insignificant to something outstanding. And I think that really parallels what you've managed to do with your bee's knees story, starting out as a very small business and now with these you know, five major components of your business and all the good work you're doing. 
in the community. So I think there are many, many good things yet to come for you guys, uh, for both of you. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and share your passion and your mission with us. And I really hope you have a great 2014 for your business, your customers, and of course, the bees. So thanks for being on the show, gals. Jennifer, thank you so much for having me. Oh, so great, Jennifer. I'm so excited. And thank you. It was really, really fun. Agreed. Well, have a great afternoon. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Well, that's it for our show today. I want to thank Christy and Aaron for being such great guests. I don't know about you, but I learned a ton. I did not know that bee foraging will impact the flavor of honey. I did not know how bees uh, overwintered, and that whole process is really fascinating. And also, I loved that they really broke things into very simple, doable, hopeful steps for each of us. We can add more diversity in our 2014 garden to help bees. We can also eliminate the use of pesticides. And if each one of us uh, make those things happen, they're small, attainable, and impactful things that we can do in our own gardens. Just a quick request from me is if you enjoyed the show, give Aaron and Christy some love. Like their Facebook page, drop them a line. These gals are really making a difference in the Twin Cities, and their work for bees is important. Now, these gals have tons of passion, and I know that's propelling them forward, but everybody can use a pat on the back from time to time. So if you got a little extra time in your week, give them some positive feedback, send them some sugar. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast in iTunes, of course, as well as a couple of my favorite apps, which include Stitcher and Swell, and then, of course, the BlackBerry podcast. You can also subscribe directly to blog posts to get them via email. Just go to my website at sixfootmama.com, and you can sign up there. And a reminder that I'll have all of the information from the show today at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six ftmama.com and you can find this episode in the top menu under the still growing podcast don't forget you can always find me at sixfootmama.com or on facebook.com backslash still growing with sixfootmama and you can always email me directly at jennifer at sixfootmama.com Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Okay, so for the extras at the end of the show today, PJ is here. And he is going to read a poem that he wrote for his fourth grade class. And you're studying poetry this week, is that right? Yes. And how many original poems do you need to write this week, PJ? Well, um, all the poems are due on May 2nd. All of them do not rhyme, by the way. And um, two of them are supposed to rhyme, so um, I... I um, I only brought one of them today, and I'll do the um my other one tomorrow. And this is about a fishing poem. Okay, can you read it? You wrote this all by yourself, right? Yes, no help. Okay, here we go. When you're fishing, you're bored. Because you sit there, nothing to spare, waiting for a fish. Waiting for a fish, and then you caught one. Then your job is done. Then you notice it's stinky, and it almost bit my pinky. So you throw it back with a big whack, and you go home, start writing about a fish pole. That was great. Thank you. Thank you.
Did you like the ending on that one? I loved how you... Yeah, fish. Yeah, yeah I thought that was very clever. Now, um, the other thing is when you were starting your poetry unit, your teacher wanted you to remember a poem, right? To memorize a poem. Yes. So correct. what was the poem that you had to memorize? A poem I had to memorize? Flanders Field. Yeah, Flanders Field. I thought, I thought you said one, uh, my other one. I'm like... No, no. The poem that you had to memorize for your class assignment was in Flanders Field. Oh, or yeah, Flanders yeah. Field. Okay, so do you want to do that one for us? Sure. Flanders Field, the poppies grow between the crosses row on row. Okay, start, start one more time and project. Here we go. In Flanders Field by John McCrae. And by the way, interesting factoid, um, he made this because his friend died and he was in the war. Flanders Field by John McCray. In Flanders Field, the poppies grow between the crosses, row on row, that marker place, and in the sky, the lark still bravely singing fly. Scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead short days ago. We live, felt dawn, saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Field. Take up the coral with the fall from family and hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith to us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Thank you. Okay. All right. So, Emma is here, and Emma is also studying poetry this week. Is that right, Emma? Yep. And what is your class, your sixth grade class, studying about poetry? Um. Well, we're... Studying memorization, basically, um, we don't want to lose the brain cells that <laughs> the she said that you lose brain cells if you don't use them for memorization. So you lose those brain cells. So those people out there who aren't memorizing, I suggest you memorize something now. Okay. <laughs> so do you have a poem that you're working on memorizing? Yes. And what's the poem? The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. And that's the one you're going to read today? Yes. Or, or memorize or recite, right? Yes. Okay, are you ready? Yes. Okay, and you're 12. Yes, I'm 12 years old. The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood. And looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trod in black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Some are ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. That was great. <laughs> Why are you crying? Because I love that poem. <laughs> okay, so Will is here. Hi. Okay, so, uh, Will, you're 14. Yes. 
And you are going to read what? Is this a poem or is it a speech? Speech. Okay, so you're going to do a speech. Yes. And you're you're in eighth grade and your class is um, doing a section on oratory, correct? Yes. And mom's going to be going into the school and I'll be helping you and some of your classmates prepare your speeches, right? Yep. And you need to memorize them? Yes. And which one are you choosing to do? I have chosen Ronald Reagan... Address to the nation on the space shuttle Challenger. Yes. And you know that mommy and daddy were at a debate tournament when we were how old? Uh, you were in 10th grade. So. Yeah, we were in 10th grade and we were 16. Yeah, we were 16 years old and we were probably in Mankato at a speech tournament, I think. Mm. Um, we were somewhere far from home and that happened. And I remember we had to ride the van back back home but that was where we were at the day that the challenger blew up so you're going to read this short speech it's a relatively short speech right yeah page if you call that short yep it's a page um and ronald reagan delivered it after the challenger blew up so you're going to read this speech and uh for anybody listening who was alive at that time it will probably bring back some memories yes it will All right, here we go. And probably a couple tears. And a couple of tears, yep. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, I plan to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union, but the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the Shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. Nineteen years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle, but they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourned seven heroes, Michael Smith, Dick Scooby, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Christina McCullough. We mourn their loss as a nation together. For the families of the seven, we cannot bear, as you do, the full impact of the tra- of this tragedy. But we feel the loss, and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones are daring and brave, and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, Give me a challenge, and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve, and they did. They served all of us. We've grown, to, we've grown used to wonders in this century. It's hard to dazzle us. But for 25 years, the United States Space Program has been doing just that. We've grown to use the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. Well, we're, we're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew... We're pioneers. And I want to say something to the school children of America who were watching live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew was pu- pulling us into the future, and we continue to follow them. 
I've always had a great faith in and respect for our space program. And what happened today does not does nothing to diminish it. We we don't hide our space program. We don't keep secrets and cover things up. We do it all up front and in public. That is the way freedom is, and we wouldn't and we wouldn't change it for a minute. We'll continue our quest in space. There will be more shuttle flights and more shuttle crews, and yes, more volunteers and more civilians, more teachers in space. Nothing ends here. Our hopes and journeys continue. I want to add that I that I wish I could talk to every man and woman who works for NASA or who worked on the mission and tell them, your dedication and professionalism have moved and impressed us for decades. We know of your anguish. We share it. There was a coincidence today. On this day, 390 years ago, the great explorer Sir Francis Drake died aboard ship off the coast of Panama. In his lifetime, the great frontiers were the oceans, and a historian later said he lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. Well, today, they, we can say of the Challenger crew, their dedication was like Drake's complete. The crew of the sh- space shuttle Challenger honored us by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. No, I have to uh, write a research paper on the atomic bomb. Oh, yay for me. That's it, everybody. Have a great week.